Hello and welcome to this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and in this episode, we are joined by Rana Dietrich. Rana will be reading from and talking to us about rewriting Eve, claiming women's sacred stories as our own. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Yvonne. It's my privilege and pleasure for sure. Oh, definitely. Anytime. Everyone knows by now I love being read to. And so <laughs> when you contacted about the possibility of, you know, reading to me, it was like, how can I ever say no to that? So thank you so much for getting in <laughs> Of that. course. So we're just going to jump right in. Could you tell us a bit about the book, please? Sure. So probably the easiest way to understand the book is to know a little bit about me. I grew up in the church, married a pastor, went to seminary when I was like 40. And in that experience began the process of deconstructing a lot of what I had once believed, ended up divorcing the pastor, which was 15 years later, and leaving the church. In the midst of all of that, what I was really clear about was that I wasn't willing to leave the stories of the women behind. And I think often when we step away from our beliefs or our childhood faith, we feel like we have to walk away from all of it or stay with all of it. And I just have been really committed to bringing forth the stories of the women in this text in very progressive, feminist, powerful ways. And so the book is 10 stories of women that I've rewritten. And then that I talk about in ways that invite us to think more deeply about our own story, how it's been influenced by the way that these women's stories have been told over time, and what would be different if we heard the stories differently, knew the women differently, and allowed them to companion and guide us. Wow, that sounds amazing and also just really timely and so useful for so many people and how the ways that it can spark conversations and deep thinking. Could we have a first reading, please? Sure. So it's hard for me to choose. People ask me all the time who my favorite, what woman is my favorite, and it's kind of like choosing your favorite child. But one of the stories that I retell is the story of Hagar, who is in the Old Testament and is pretty badly harmed and abused by the patriarch Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And it's bad enough that she runs away into the desert when she's pregnant. And so this piece begins to speak a little bit about that. Hagar was an enslaved woman with no resources, no family, nothing, and no one on whom she could depend. Her decision to run could have easily ended her life and her child's. She left anyway. It wasn't really a choice. She knew. And she knows even now, even still, of all the wisdom she longs to offer us, all that she wants us to believe and trust, her voice rings out again and again, saying, you already know. You already know that it's time to walk away. You already know that the relationship is over. You already know that you are compromising yourself. You already know that the hard conversations ahead are going to be yours to start and finish. You already know that your job is not a fit. You already know that you have to leave the church. You already know that what you once believed and trusted in isn't working anymore. You already know that your perspective and opinion matter. You already know that you are more than enough and deserve the best. You already know, you already know, you already know. But not alone, never alone. Hagar already knows of our every what if and worry. 
She knows we wish and wait for validation and encouragement for someone else to step up. She knows we secretly pray for a miracle, an intervention, the ability to endure a bit longer. She knows that the beauty and strength of our knowing is not remotely contingent on whether we follow through on it or don't. She knows we deserve grace. She knows that our intuition and wisdom can be trusted. She knows there is no reason to doubt our capacity, our courage, even our wobbly next steps. And she knows we will one day believe her when we hear her say, you already know. You should know that I have questioned all of this more times than I can count. I have anxiously listed out all the things that could possibly go wrong if I actually believed her and or believed in myself. I have swirled and obsessed and created pro and con lists and prayed and bargained and lived in massive denial. I have poured more wine and watched more TV. I have moved furniture and cleaned closets and shopped online. Once, while still married, I completely repainted and redecorated our bedroom, convinced that a change in the environment would change everything else as well, even though I already knew. It was just so much easier to pretend that I didn't. Hagar's story brings me back from pretending in a heartbeat. In my most desperate moments, even in my best ones, she is who I look to and lean on. I already know that she knows everything I am feeling and fearing. I already know that she is here and I am not alone, ever. I already know what she will tell me. Somehow, hearing it from her, a woman who knew unfathomable trauma and terror, who chose to stand her ground and save her own life, who was met by divine messengers and miracles and blessings untold, offers me the exact consolation I need and compels my courage. I stand a bit taller. I feel worth saving. I let myself consider the possibility that even though it all looks impossible right now, perhaps I, too, will know divine messengers and miracles and blessings. And I admit that she's been right all along. I do already know, as do you. But on days when you forget, when you feel forsaken and forlorn, when miles and miles of sand are all that appear to stretch before you, Hagar offers you her hand her certainty, her confidence, and her knowing on your behalf, like water in the desert. Oh, I love that even though you've left the church behind, you didn't leave the stories of the women and you brought those with you. And I'm really curious, what was rewriting their stories like for you and what's something you might have learned? Yeah, for me, it's been a really personal process of, you know, finding myself in my own places of difficulty, my own deserts, my own challenges and struggles and needing something, someone to whom I could relate that I really could go to for wisdom and perspective. And so early on, Yvonne, it was just a personal practice. I would Like in the context of my divorce, I remember sitting down and just imagining what would Hagar say to me based on what I know about her story, what she suffered through, what she experienced, what do I imagine she would say? And will I give myself permission to to let her speak in a different way than we've been told these stories all along? And over time, you know, people have said to me, I don't think you can rewrite those. I don't think that's okay. And I think, 
then that's your opinion. I'm totally okay with rewriting these stories. I, we have permission to work with this text in ways that have meaning for us. Otherwise, why bother? So from a personal process and practice for me, it has turned into the ongoing process of rewriting these stories and compiling them in the book. Oh, that's wonderful. Can we have another reading, please? Sure, sure. So this is based on the story that's in the New Testament that's about a woman. Um, we don't hear this story very often because it's a little bit controversial, but she basically argues with Jesus. He says that he can't help her and she stands her ground and insists that he does it anyway. The disciples try to send her away. She refuses. And eventually he offers her what it is that she's asked for in the first place. Uh, so this is about her. It is a scary, even absurd thing to desire, to dare to ask for what we want, to hold on to the hope that we will be seen, heard, and answered. I have often chosen what seemed a far safer route. I have shut my desire down completely. No crying out, no praying, no wanting. I have turned off my feelings altogether, thinking that to, that to be the wisest and sanest choice definitely preferable to facing disappointment and feeling my heart break yet again. Being single, infertility, in the darkest days of my marriage, as a mother, being single yet again. I divorced more than 16 years ago. Early on, I assumed I would meet someone and remarry, but as more time, and more time still, has passed, it has become shockingly easy to not desire a relationship at all. This is especially true when I even remotely consider the perils of online dating, of which I have had my fill. It is exhausting to peruse profiles, swipe left or right, engage in casual chit-chat that rarely goes anywhere, and weed through too many men who, at least from the safe distance of an app on my phone, do not begin to meet my expectations. My life is complete, satisfying, and amazing without a man, without a partner, I say to myself. This is both accurate and honest, but so is this. I need to ask myself what I really want, reconnect with my desire, and then no matter what answer comes, allow myself to be with the ache that the question often provokes. The ache is inevitable, I believe, and it is far more. I have come to see it as evidence of something beautiful, compelling, and oh-so-wise, evidence of my very heart. Despite the hurt I have known, the fears that have often overwhelmed, and multiple disappointments along the way, my heart has never led me astray. Let me be clear. This is not to say that I will return to online dating. But at the end of the day, what I have learned through much trial and error, and through the profound and powerful story of the Canaanite woman, is that desire is not what hurts. Not desiring is what hurts. Not desiring is what is scary and risky and daunting. The only alternative or antidote I have been able to find to all of this, the ache, the risk, the disappointment, the fear, is settling for less. And if there is anything the story of the Canaanite woman teaches, invites, and compels, it is that this is not to be my fate or yours. Oh, how lovely. And it's right that that absence of desire can be and probably should be worrying and worrisome that what happens when you not only don't know what you want, but don't want 
anything. We don't want to want because it's too disappointing. We're afraid of getting hurt. Wow. Yeah. So what were some of your, or if you had any parameters, um, how did you decide which stories, like whose stories to rewrite and what to put aside either for another, you know, time, another book or just. Yeah. I wish I could tell you I had some really intellectual and brilliant formula. Um, I knew I had to do Eve because that's the book is named rewriting Eve. My Ted talk is about Eve. I've been talking about Eve for a very long time and hers is the story that everybody instantly knows. And so I can make my case in terms of the impact of how that story has been told and the way that it's harmed us and why it's necessary to see her in a new way. I chose Hagar because she's my favorite. Um, I chose, ultimately, I have seven stories from the Old Testament and three from the New. Honestly, like anything that I chose, I mean, I've worked with over 50 of them now in, in varying contexts. I just wrote, and I've been working on the book for almost 20 years. So when I finally had the contract signed and knew that I had to actually make up my mind, uh, I, I really just leaned toward the ones that I felt would be the easiest for women, any reader to grasp and connect with the fastest. I wanted to choose some stories that people who grew up in the church might have known, but needed to hear a different way. And I wanted to hear stories that I was pretty sure nobody'd heard because they're not told of these women often. Um, so it's a mixture of all of those things and they're all amazing women, amazing stories that deserve to be heard. I love that. It, I guess I love knowing that it took 20 years to write this book hmm. and you, you know, you wrote it, you didn't give up on it. You you kept going. Could you talk a little bit about that, about the, I guess the, the, the steps to writing the book or mm-hmm. what it was from idea to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's been such a long journey. I, um, I mean, I've been a writer on some level for a very long time, if not just for myself personally, then certainly blogging. And, you know, I've been in an online space for a very long time. But I knew a long time ago, I think it was probably about 20 years ago, that that the way that I was thinking about these stories and these women was really important and unique. I wasn't seeing a lot of this conversation taking place 20 years ago. Now I see much more of it, thankfully. Numbers of books that are being written about Mary Magdalene and a lot, just much more contemporary ways of thinking about these women's stories. But back then, there wasn't a lot of that going on. So I think, you know, I never really questioned that somehow at some point in time, this would be something I would create. And I will say for people who are writers, it's been a really arduous journey. My subject matter sits in kind of this odd in-between space. It's it's not designed for like mainstream Christian readers, although I would hope they would read it and find something meaningful in it. And at the same time, when I begin talking about stories from the Bible, I'm immediately slicing off an entire group of people that I want to have read it who would never darken the door of a church, because I think it's equally as valuable in both camps. So from a publishing perspective, I've really struggled. I've been rejected lots and lots and lots of times. And it's hard to continue to believe that it's worth it. It's hard to continue to persevere. It's just an arduous process. And then even once, you know, the publisher says yes, 
it's there's still more work to be done. You know, now you have to start slicing and dicing and you have to hand your child over basically to the rest of the world and hope that they'll be as kind to it as you want them to be. So yeah, it's just been a very, very long journey. And I'm grateful that I've hung in there and persevered and that now it's out in the world. I think there's something special about we it's not the reclaiming, it's the claiming of these women's stories and the reimagining and rewriting of them that I think makes it something why I would want to read it. If they were mm-hmm. the stories as written, you know, or as told um already, I would be as inclined to read them as I am already to read them, in which <laughs> is to say yeah. no, I <laughs> that I am not. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. I think it's something with the narrative and something of mm-hmm. knowing that they're actually, they're centered and it's not their story told through another mm-hmm. lens. It's their story centered. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that that intrigues me and that also yeah. makes me think like, oh, okay, actually... You know, I might get that book a try. Not mm-hmm. the Bible yet, but yeah, yeah, but yeah. Saying I that get I, it. I totally get it. And I that's one of the things I say really frequently in the book is that, you know, the way that we have, I think it's important that we keep separate the way the stories are written or how they've been passed down and how they've been interpreted and told. So when we look at the history of the church, when we look at patriarchy, when we look at misogyny, when we look at all of these realities that have influenced the way these stories, especially about women, have been told. But that's one thing. But to go back to the text and imagine the story through the lens of the woman herself versus the man who told the story for centuries and centuries and then wrote it down and then translated it and translated it and translated it, and then pastors who have mostly been men, priests who have mostly been men, like, you know, percentage wise, there obviously are women who are in these roles now, but we've not as lay people, as just average people who are not trained, who are not pastors, who are not in leadership in this regard, who are not theologians. We conflate what we've always heard about the story with the woman herself. And that's what I'm trying to pull apart. What if you could just imagine what this was like for her? And make it up as you go. You're not going to get it wrong. Mm. It's a different way of understanding the same story. You know, like the ground's not going to open under up underneath you. Fire and lightning are not going to come down from the sky. It's totally okay. And I think to, to your point also in terms of the stories that you would or wouldn't read, I think often about stories like Isis, Medusa, Persephone, Harriet Tubman, Gosh, so so many women who've done amazing things that we would no more think of abandoning Mm -hmm. than fly. We would not want to ever forget those stories. And yet, when it comes to stories like Eve or Hagar or Mary Magdalene or the woman at the well, we're like, "Mm, I'm not sure I want to go there. And I think, why are they different? What if we could find the same beauty and wisdom in them as we do in all these other stories and hold them that close. So that's I like what you said about um, kind of separating the text from the way that we've been like taught to imagine them or to experience them. Cause I know I always find it like problematic when I consider how the Bible and religion was used against enslaved people. 
mm-hmm. and used as a way to justify slavery. And Absolutely. so I, I know that a lot of my hesitation with it is because not necessarily the book itself, but the, the way the book was used. Exactly. And that's appropriate. I mean, I feel like that skepticism and that distance and that resistance is all an appropriate response to the way in which those texts have been used. But it's usury. Now, that's not to say that there aren't things in the text that are problematic. Of course there are. It's a very old document that is oral tradition that's been told and told and told and finally written down. Who knows if these stories are accurate, even happened in the first place, were just made up because they made a point. Like, we don't know these things. We have no way of knowing that. And so for me, after leaving the church, you know, where these were sacrosanct, like, you don't mess with these. Like, that's, no, you don't get to change anything. Now, I just hold it really loosely. To me, it's just another source of stories that have wisdom in them, no different than Greek or Roman myths or an awesome fiction book or nonfiction. It, like, it's exactly the same. Will I, what will I find when I enter into story that speaks to me? Can I, I be open that. to that and allow that? I absolutely love that. Could we have our final reading, please? Sure. Yes. All right. So it's right on track with what we were just talking about. This has always been the way of it. Stories are rewritten and retold time and again around an outdoor fire or a kitchen table, whether we sit in circle or on a pew, whether we spend time with family or friends. We understand that story is not the gospel truth or journalism or courtroom testimony. The fish gets a little bigger, the storm gets a little wilder, the love gets a little stronger, our bravery or disappointments get a little exaggerated in the telling over time. And yet, for all this, we have made sacred stories and texts somehow off-limits to rewriting. They are carved in stone, inviolate and immutable. To touch them, let alone tamper with them, will ruin them and us, or so we've been told. Our imagination is dangerous. These texts are sacrosanct, their retelling sacrilegious. I believe exactly the opposite. When we do not dare to rewrite our sacred stories and texts, we lose hope. Our imagination is what keeps them alive and vital. But when we hold them at arm's length, when we declare that their meaning, value, and worth can only be maintained through objective distance, they become increasingly irrelevant, as do the institutions by which they are protected and ostensibly revered. I am not willing to lose hope. I rewrite sacred stories so that the women within them are seen again and anew, their voices heard, their harm named, their shame lifted, their silence ended, their perseverance esteemed, and their hope honored. And when that happens, everything changes. We change. We are seen. Our own voices are heard. Our own harm is named. Our own shame is lifted. Our own silence ends. Our own perseverance is esteemed, and our own hope is not only honored, but also fanned into flame, despite every attempt to tamp it and us down. It is my deepest hope that as I rewrite these sacred stories of women, you will better see and understand your own. It is my deepest hope that you will bravely name the stories you've been told and the ones you tell yourself 
and that you will rewrite them both defiantly and on your own terms. It is my deepest hope that you will hold fast to every invitation to reimagine, reclaim, revision, and redeem the stories that form your sacred lineage, the shoulders upon which you stand, the women from whom you descend. And it is my deepest hope that you will know with unquestionable certainty that you are their daughter, their lineage, their kin. Oh, Rhonda, so where can we buy Rewriting Eve, Claiming Women's Mm. Sacred Stories as our own? Thanks. You can buy it anywhere books are sold. I love it when people go to bookshop.org that supports independent booksellers. And of course, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you want to find it, it's out there. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for being my guest and for reading to us and talking about the book and your writing and wishing you every success. Thank you so much, Yvonne. Really, I appreciate it.